Well, good morning. It is certainly a pleasure uh, to be here with all of you this morning, uh, especially since we did attend Edgewood, and so we feel like we've come full circle here again, and to be able to come back here uh, and to minister to you all. Uh, and I just uh, want to say, it's just such a marvelous thing to praise God with his people. Amen? It is such a good thing, and it, it never uh, fails uh, to overwhelm me uh, to go and visit other churches and just to see God's people praising him. It is, it's just such a good thing to behold. And I'm reminded of that this morning, worshiping with you. Uh, so first, I, I want to extend uh, my thanks uh, to the elders here and to Steve and for all of you who warmly greeted us uh, this morning and welcomed us into your church. It is, it is a pleasure to be here. And I bring heartfelt uh, greetings from Ryan Wood and the elders at Redemption Bible Church. And I, would, I just want to take a moment uh, before we get started with our message this morning and uh, call out how amazing God's providence is uh, with us being here. And this is what I mean by that. Uh, some of you may recognize me this morning and go, and, oh, it's, it's that guy. And uh, what's that guy been up to? Well, I'm going I'm to tell you what this guy's been up to. Um, my wife and I, as I just mentioned, we attended here uh, at EBC for a couple years, and we were here when EBC put together the church plant team for Redemption Bible Church in Bonnie Lake. And while we were not particularly a part of that church plant team, um, we really felt that God was calling us to RBC during that time. Uh, so we ended up uh, attending church there, and through the discipleship program at RBC, I began to feel led to come into the ministry. And I didn't know at the time that it would lead me back here, uh, but I think that it is very, uh, it's awesome in God's providence to point this out, that uh, as you have planted, uh, others have sown, and God has brought the increase, and now as coming out of EBC into that church that you planted through their discipleship program, uh, here ministers are being raised uh, to preach God's word, to carry on the message of the gospel, and here I am. I've come back full circle to you, uh, and it's just such a pleasure, again, just to minister to you. And I mean that as an encouragement so that you can see uh, the fruit of your effort and how worthy of an effort that was uh, to put together that church plant and to plant churches. Um, so it is definitely, again, it is an honor to be with you this morning. And, um, and so as we turn our attention to God's word, I'm going to start off by uh, being a little bit transparent with you. And so I have a, a confession to make right up front. I am not necessarily the easiest person to ride in a car with when I'm driving. In fact, there are times where I can be downright miserable. Now, for me to explain what I mean, I want to paint for you a picture of a typical driving experience with David. Now, first off, even before we even get on the road, I'm already complaining because we're not loading up the van fast enough. And that's just the beginning. The real complaining hasn't even started yet. Sometimes it starts at the very first stop sign in our neighborhood. And this is how it'll go. I've stopped and I've waited for someone, being courteous to give them the right of way. And it seems like once they know that I'm waiting there, they slow down to an absolute minimum speed to actually keep moving them forward. And then my complaining heart starts up. 
But then, you know, I get out and I pull out into the road behind them, and of course, they're, now they're going too slow. And so I started to complain. Why didn't I just pull out in front of them in the first place? And then perhaps after that, the complaining might subside for a little while, for a whole 60 seconds. Because at this point, we've come to the first traffic light. And after waiting for what seems like a whole three minutes, the light will turn green, and the person in front of me is not watching the light, but they're looking at their phone. And again, it stirs my complaining heart. Now, there's an endless variety of things that happen while driving to complain about. Okay? This person isn't responding to the change in traffic fast enough, or they're entering the freeway too slow, or they're following too close, or not losing their turn signal. Or how about this? Cruising in the passing lane. <laughs> Keep right except to pass, right? There really is an endless stream of complaints that can pour out of my heart while I'm on the road. And if it's not complaining about drivers on the road, it's complaining about where to park. What's amazing is that I can even complain about things that I already know are going to happen. For instance, I know that traffic is bad. This is Western Washington. It's some of the worst traffic in the nation. In fact, according to US News, the Seattle area has the sixth worst traffic in the nation. And knowing that, I will get out on the road, and even when I know that it's peak hours, and I'll complain about the traffic, which in turn triggers more complaining about how many people have moved into the area, which triggers more complaining about how the roads need to be widened, which in turn fuels more complaining about how high taxes are in the state, the DMV, and how inefficient the state uses those taxes, and on and on and on and on. Now, Perhaps some of you can relate to what I'm saying. But maybe it's not traffic that tends to trigger the complaining in your heart. Perhaps it's reading news and complaining about politics or world events. Or it's complaining about not having enough time to do the things that you want to do. Maybe it's complaining about your spouse or your children and they're just not thinking the same way that you do. Or just other people that just don't get you. But the truth is that we complain about everything and anything, even if it's not important. And we complain that it's too rainy, and then the sun comes out for a couple weeks, and then we complain it's too hot or too dry. We complain that it's taking too long in the line at the grocery store, or that it's taking too long to get service at a restaurant. Now, the reality is that we complain because we have a heart that tends to be self-centered, and we complain instead of being thankful. Now, if you're like Michelle and I, and you're currently raising children or have raised children, chances are you've spent a lot of time and energy teaching them not to complain, but to be thankful. Now, let me give you an idea of what frequently goes down at the dinner table at the Lemke House. Now, breakfast and lunch aren't typically a problem because both Sam and Henry, and those are my two oldest boys, Sam is five and Henry is two. Sam and Henry will eat those meals separately from us and they typically get things that they like. But when it comes to dinner time, we all eat as a family, and we all eat the exact same meal. And with very few exceptions, there's usually the sour looks and the slumped over dejected frame of a disappointed little boy 
who will swear that the very meal that we're serving him, that he eagerly devoured just a week before, is something that he doesn't like, that he has never liked, and that it would be some cruel and unusual punishment to require him to eat it. And he begins to complain. Now, this is something that this particular little boy will get in trouble for, especially because these complaints will come just after we've given thanks to God for the very meal that he's complaining about. And we point that out to him each time that he does it. How can it be that you're thanking God for the food and then complaining about it from the same mouth? James in the New Testament puts it like this. This is James 3, verses 10 and 11. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Now, this is something that we don't tolerate from our children, and we correct them and teach them to be thankful. But here's a question for us this morning. We teach our children these things, but are we teaching our own hearts? Are we listening to our own admonishments and taking to heart the lessons that we are expecting our children to follow? Moreover, we're fighting this battle with them daily, reminding them over and over again to simply say Thank you. But are our hearts thankful? Now, before we move forward and examine what I'm calling the anatomy of a thankful heart, I want to step back for a few moments and talk about what's going on in our hearts when we complain. I want to expose some of those elements and first uncover the anatomy of our complaining. So why do we complain? Well, conventional wisdom would say that we complain because we don't take notice of what we have or we're forgetting how good it is that we have it. And what I mean by that is, you know, we have decent houses and food and cars and in abundance and then we just simply forget to say thank you. But the reality is that these things are all around us. They're right in front of us all the time and we're practically choking on them. So I think it's hard to make the case that we're simply forgetting to be thankful and that's what's fueling our complaining. There has to be something else that's going on. Now some might say that it's bad circumstances that are leading us to complain. Perhaps it's something like, this person wronged me or this bad thing happened to me and I didn't deserve it. Or it might be getting stuck in the sixth worth traffic in the nation or something completely out of my control has happened to me, and I just feel justified to gripe and complain about it. But I don't think it's because of those circumstances either. I've witnessed people in third world countries living in nothing more than a concrete box who are happy and thankful. Now, if our circumstances are what's driving our complaining, or if having things is what's giving rise to thankfulness, they should be the most unthankful and complaining people in the world. But they aren't. And we here in the United States should be among the least complaining people, not only in the world, but in all human history. No, our problem with complaining is deeper than bad circumstances or having a slip of the mind to be thankful because we don't have stuff. And I'm going to say it, I'm going to be blunt. We complain because we are sinners. 
We want what we want, and we don't want anyone or anything to impede us. And when we don't get it, we complain. Because we are sinners and are self-centered and complain instead of giving thanks to God for the most important gift he has ever given us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now that we've made the, the initial incision and exposed the problem of our heart, what is the solution? Well, simply put, when we let our hearts be impacted by the grace of God through the gospel, we find our hearts overwhelmed with thankfulness. Biblical thanks is not about politeness or simply being grateful for the physical needs being met. Biblical thanks is about being humbled in sincere gratitude for the gospel. Now, this is going to be the focus of our message this morning. We're going to be examining what I am calling the anatomy of a thankful heart. And we'll be examining this through the writings of the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians, Paul paints a clear picture of what a thankful heart looked like, and I think that can be summed up like this. Paul shows us that the anatomy of a thankful heart is a heart overwhelmed in giving thanks to God because of God-given life in others through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you haven't already, would you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now as you're turning there, I want to catch us up briefly on the circumstances around the writing of this letter. In Acts 17, um, we have recorded for us Paul, Timothy, and Silas arriving in the city of Thessalonica. And Paul has only about three weeks to share the gospel. And though there were many there in this town that were being converted and they were being saved, Paul was essentially run out of town by jealous Jews that were there in the city. And since he had to leave so quickly and wasn't able to fully develop all of the doctrines of the Christian living with them, and there were some things that were causing some confusion among them. Things like Christ's return to the earth, or how they were to live as Christians while they were waiting for him, or what happens to our brother or sister in Christ who has died before he returns. These were questions that he had, that they had. So Paul's writing to clear up some of those issues, but he's also writing to express his joy from hearing how well they are doing. And I think that it's captured beautifully in the way that he opens this letter with thanksgiving to God. So read along with me, starting in verse 1. We're going to read all the way through verse 1 through verse 10. This is 1 Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. 
For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, as we read this, it would be hard to believe if we did not have the book of Acts that the person who wrote this once persecuted the church of God. He is now writing affectionately to people whom before he was converted would have been completely justified and completely satisfied in himself to bring them to their death. Now, instead of having a, a heart filled with hatred toward them, he now has a heart overflowing with thanks to God for them. Paul is showing us first in the opening words of verse two, as we examine the anatomy of a thankful heart, that thank, a thankful heart is one that is moved to action. Now, I want us to look closely at the first words in verse two. What does it say there? It says, we give thanks. Now, I think it's important to point out that this is how the apostle starts out. He is giving thanks. That is an action that he is moved toward. And that flows from the reality of everything that Paul is describing in the rest of his opening statement. It's the reality of seeing people's lives changed by the gospel. He's not saying we're thankful as an adjective describing them, but he says we give thanks. It is an action as something that they are actively engaged in doing. And I think it's important to make that distinction. There is a difference between someone telling you that they have a thankful heart and actually expressing that thankfulness to you. It's just the same as someone says, I love you, and then actually loving you by the things that they do. For a moment, just think about it when you do something kind for someone. And they don't really say thank you or take any action to express their gratitude. And then if they're called on it and they say, oh, well, I was thankful in my heart. Well, maybe so, but that's a lot different than if they were to respond with an action of kindness or even just with a heartfelt thank you. Simply describing that you have a thankful heart is different than being moved to action because of it. And the very fact that Paul starts out with, we give thanks, gives us an indication to where his priority is. He places it right out in front at the first thing out of his mouth because that is where his heart is set. It is thankful heart moved to action by the reality of God-given life in the gospel. This is who Paul was. And if we were to look at him as an example, it's who we ought to be as well. Now, as we continue our examination in the anatomy of the thankful heart, um, we also see that our thanks should flow from a God-focused heart. Look with me again at verse two. It says, we give thanks to God. Paul doesn't say, we give thanks to you, Thessalonians, because of everything that we're hearing that you're doing. And he doesn't give thanks to himself. He doesn't say, oh, I give thanks to myself that I brought that message of the gospel to you. Aren't you glad? No, he says, we give thanks to God. God is the one to whom our hearts are overflowing with gratitude toward. God is the great provider of all things. He is the source of very life that we have. 
the good creator of heaven and earth and all that is in it. We like to pat ourselves on the back and thank ourselves for what we have, but the reality is all those good things come from our heavenly father. And the one true thing that we need, we have no hope in supplying for ourselves. And God, out of his generous mercy, has supplied it for us for free. Life eternal through Jesus. We can't earn it. We can't get rid of our own sin. We can't cleanse ourselves and be made holy outside of life in Jesus Christ. And it is God and God alone who gives it to you. Our hearts should be bursting continually with thankfulness to God because he is at the very center of life itself, our redemption. And that reality should humble us and and it should remove the spotlight from ourselves because we also see that a thankful heart gives thanks for God-given life in others. Look again at verse two, it says, we read, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Paul's thanks and prayers are always directed toward others. That's what a heart changed by the gospel does to you. It looks at what God is doing in your life and the joy and the hope that is found in Jesus and it longs for that in others and it removes the spotlight from you. Paul's not interested in praising himself. Because his satisfaction, his joy is derived from seeing God work in other people's lives. Paul is seeing the radical effects of the Holy Spirit working in them, and it's moving him to be thankful to God for it. And now he says in here that he's constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Now, when he says constantly, that doesn't mean that Paul just went on and on and on and on, droning on hour after hour, doing nothing but praying for them, going back, writing a letter, and then going back and praying. What I think this is communicating is that this is a way of life for the apostle. Paul's thankful heart is impacted so much by the grace of God in the gospel that his entire being is dedicated to serving God's people continually. He loves seeing God's people thrive and he loves praying for them. Now what changes a man who wanted to murder Christians to one who wanted to serve them continually? And it wasn't for profit and it certainly wasn't for comfort and it wasn't for an easy lifestyle or social status. In fact, everything that Paul did for the kingdom of Christ constantly put his life in jeopardy. Think Paul had a nice lifestyle? Should read about some of the conditions of first century Roman prisons. Sobering. And exposes our complaining to look downright petty. Yet Paul had a heart thankful for God-given life in others. Because Paul had been changed by the power of the gospel. And he knew in his heart what those changes were. And he knew the man that he was before he became a Christian and he knows how the gospel transformed his heart and he is joyfully seeing that same transformation happening in the Thessalonians. The reason Paul is overwhelmed with thankfulness to God is because what God is doing in the lives of others through the gospel, God is transforming lives. 
God is infusing spiritual life into them that didn't exist in them before. And Paul's hearing word that this is happening with him and is causing his heart to overflow with rejoicing and praise and thankfulness to God for it. Now, I think it's extremely important to understand this reality that our, that our thanks rises from who God is and what he is accomplishing through the gospel because that is an essential part of our worship of him. As we draw deeper into the reality of who we are, changed by the gospel and given life eternal, not only by, the merit, by, not by our own merit, not by anything that we deserve, but by the merciful grace of God the more our hearts should burst with sincere reverence and love toward him and move us to bow our knees to him in worship and say, thank you. Now, up to this point, we've been pressing into the anatomy of a thankful heart using the scalpel of scripture to uncover that thankfulness is overwhelmed to action, that it is centered upon God and that it finds itself affectionately working for others and praying for them. But now we're gonna look at why. Paul's witnessing the evidences of the reality of the gospel in the Thessalonians. And he is thanking God for them. And in doing so, Paul is calling out three specific characteristics which are true marks of Christian faith in our passage. Look with me at verse three. We read, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is what theologians refer to as the triad of Christian virtues, faith, love, and hope. And Paul mentions these three together in some of his other letters. We see them in Romans and in Galatians, in 1 Corinthians, and at the beginning of the letter to the Colossians. But we also find them mentioned here in this very same letter in, in Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I want us just to take us there real quick and just look at that. So would you flip over with me to chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, real quick. And look with me at verse 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8 says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for our helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, when I read that, I'm instantly struck by the imagery that Paul is using there. And it seems like it's a very familiar illustration. It reminds us of another passage in one of Paul's letters. In Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul is describing putting on the whole armor of God. And that illustration is taken from Isaiah 59, 17, which is describing God putting on the armor that he is using to engage in spiritual warfare with his, the enemies of his people. And Paul uses that imagery in Ephesians to convey the idea that as we engage in our spiritual warfare, that we were to put on the armor of God. That is, we are to put on Christ. And I think that's what Paul is seeing happening here with the Thessalonians. He's seeing them clothing themselves with Christ and is producing in them the marks of faith. And Paul's thanking God for it. Okay, flip back over to, to chapter one with me. So Paul's heart is thankful for the work of faith. That's the first virtue that we're gonna look at. 
He is seeing that they are putting their faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. And it's producing in them works of faith. They aren't sitting there idle, content with just simply agreeing with the truths of the gospel. They are taking action. They are moved by the grace of God. And Paul is seeing them in a faith that is working as it's evidencing in their new life. It's producing new life in them. And they are doing exactly what the apostle did when he came to them and proclaimed the gospel. They became imitators of the apostle and Jesus. Look with me at verse six again. This is chapter one, verse six. We read this earlier. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Wow. Imagine the delight in going to a place where the gospel has never been heard. And then you have to leave quickly before you can even have a chance to fully explain all the implications of the Christian faith. And then reports start coming to you and you start hearing that the evidences of their faith growing. They're acting. They're imitating exactly how you brought the gospel to them. Picking up the ministry and they're serving others to such a degree that you need not say anything. They have a faith that is working. And their thankfulness for the love of Christ has overwhelmed their hearts and they are spreading the greatest message man has ever heard. They are being an example of the faith to all. And those who are seeing their works of faith are echoing that back to the apostle. But this faith that is working is doing something else in them. Look with me a little further down in verse nine. Chapter one, verse nine. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They have turned to the true living God. They have abandoned conducting their lives centered around useless dead idols. They no longer derive their satisfaction out of gross idolatry of the pagans. And they're founding everlasting joy in serving the one true God. You see, that is a faith that is working. It's not just about doing good things. It's about having a heart transformed by the gospel that desires to do the will of God. It puts him at the center and it delights in doing his work. It delights in accomplishing his will for his glory. It desires to be overwhelmed by the things God has pleased him with and it endeavors to do them from a heart that is sincere with thankfulness to him. And it abandons trying to derive any satisfaction and happiness from material possessions. Now, I'm not saying that it's bad to have nice things, okay? God understands that we have need of material things. He created a material world and he supplies those things that we need. What I am saying is that we need to stop thinking that material possessions are the end all and be all of our happiness and satisfaction. I think the danger that we fall into, especially in American culture, is that we evaluate our happiness and satisfaction on the kind of things that we possess. How big of a house that we have, or how much we're getting paid. And it doesn't have to be inanimate things either to be an idol. 
It can also come from how we perceive that our relationships are going. The expectation is that we put on our spouse or on our children or other people to satisfy ourselves. Are they living up to our standards? And if they aren't, then we're unhappy. The real relationship that we need to be focused on is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Pursuing him with a faith that works for his glory and letting that take over our hearts and be thankful and be satisfied in him. But Paul's seeing something else in them. Paul's heart is also thankful for their labor of love. Real quick, I want you to turn over with me to chapter three. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter three. We'll start reading in in verse six. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. This is an example of what Christian brotherly love looks like. Look closely at the statement in verse six. It says, you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Christian love longs to be with one another and toils and labors with them. Timothy is coming to them and bringing back word of their faith. And being encouraged by it is an example of how Christian fellowship should work. It's an example of one of the primary functions of the church, to bring us together, to labor together, because we need one another. The Christian life is filled with difficulties. The world is set against us, and God has brought us together to build each other up and to love and comfort each other. Now look again what it says in verse 7. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. The distress and afflictions Paul and his companions were experiencing were not few. And many turned them away and were not so kind. So when Paul and Timothy see the work of God in their life, when they see that their faith is working through love, and they hear of the kindness that they are showing to other Christians and the longing that they have for them, Paul says, that's it. That's exactly what we're hoping to see in you. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, for their labor of love. And it is God that is working in them. Turn real quick over to chapter four. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. We read, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. You guys get it, Paul is saying. That's what we're longing to see in you. And it's not coming through us. It's not coming from us having compulsion over you. It's being taught to you by God. This is the evidence of God's spirit working in you. And we don't even have to tell you. God is working in your hearts. And you are loving each other just like you're supposed to. And it's not just one or two of the brothers that they just happen to like. 
what he's saying, he's doing what they're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Now, I wanna challenge you this morning. Are you longing to be with other Christians as Paul is seeing in the Thessalonians? Is that a priority for you? Are you reaching out to one another and expressing thankfulness to God for one another? Are you seeking out others in the faith to show kindness and compassion and to have a desire to comfort them in their distresses? Are you making time to reach out and connect with one another? And it's not just reaching out and connecting and hanging out. When you see a brother or a sister that's in need, are you willing to sacrifice for them and demonstrate that you love them? This is what the Thessalonians were doing, and this is why Paul's heart is overflowing with thanks to God for them, because their labor of love was evident. Okay, now turn back to, to chapter one with me. Not only does Paul thank God for the works of faith and labor of love, but also for the steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's heart is, Paul is stirred in his heart that the Thessalonians are remaining steadfast in their hope in Christ. They have hearts and minds that are firmly affixed upon eternity. Now listen again to how Paul ends the thanksgiving and prayer section that we read earlier. Listen particularly to what he writes in verses 10. Verse 10 of chapter one. And I'm gonna start reading in verse nine so we can get a, a flow of the thought here. Verse nine starts, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Our hope is that one day we will be with the Lord Jesus and we eagerly wait for him to return. He has promised that he will come back and restore all things. And we wait and hope that we will be co-heirs in Christ with his kingdom where suffering and tears and pain and death are banished forever. What a glorious day that will be. But notice there in verse 10, and it says, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. It is no mistake that Paul mentions the resurrection here. It is an essential doctrine of our hope. It is the hope that we will be raised up together with Christ to be with him in glory to enjoy him forever. As Christians, our hope is firmly rooted in the resurrection. What an amazing truth to rejoice and to be thankful for God for. That we will be raised up with him for all eternity. And then there is hope of salvation through Jesus. But salvation from what? Paul says in chapter one, verse 10, from the wrath to come. One of the reasons Paul is writing to the Thessalonians is to assure them of this hope, that Christ will return. And those who have faith in him and continue steadfast in their faith and labor for the gospel will be raised from the dead and will not face wrath, but will be saved by the righteousness of Jesus. Now listen to how Paul writes this in chapter five. Starting in verse eight, you don't have to turn there, just listen. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Our hope in the Lord Jesus is such a foundational truth of our faith that if we couldn't pinpoint where our hope is, our works of faith and our labor of love would lose all meaning. Works of faith and laboring of love is rooted in the hope of our Lord Jesus. Where's your hope? Is your hope in Christ and in Christ alone? If it's not, it's either in yourself or it's in some of the thing that cannot save you from the wrath to come. We cannot earn our way into heaven just by trying to be good people. We need the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is our only hope of salvation. The ultimate affections of our heart, the very core desire that we have as Christians is rooted in the hope of being with God for all eternity. And faith in Jesus Christ is the only way that we are going to get there. Encourage one another and build each other up. The thankful heart overflows with love for others and encouraging of the hope of salvation in Jesus. What a reason for the heart to erupt into thanksgiving and praise to God. Now, as we conclude, I wanna paint a scenario for you. And I wanna start off by asking a couple questions that, that, to probe our hearts. Are we thankful for what God is achieving in others through the gospel? Are you rejoicing in seeing the marks of faith in others? Are you looking for them? Are you seeing these things in your spouse and in your children? Are you thankful for seeing these things in your own life? Can you see the marks of faith, love, and steadfastness and hope in Christ alone? Is that in your life? The thankful heart looks for these things first. And now I want you to imagine coming home after a long day's work. It's been tiring, and the same personal conflicts at work have been there for a month are still happening. The to-do list is not getting any shorter. In fact, it's getting longer. Traffic is as bad as always, and on this particular day, it's taking you an extra 20 minutes to get home. And you walk in the door, and your first thought is to start complaining and unloading on all the things that annoy you to your spouse. All the things that are making your life miserable. Is that a heart overwhelmed and thankful for the grace of God? Now, I want you to imagine another scenario. You come home, it's the same circumstances, same events throughout the day, same extra 20 minutes that you were stuck in traffic, and instead of complaining to your husband or to your wife, you look at them and have a heart pouring out in thankfulness and seeing them continue in the faith in their labor of love. And thankful that you can clearly see that their hope is in Jesus and that his spirit is working in them. The highest compliment that you can give a Christian is I see the work of God in you. I see God conforming you to the perfect image of his son. I see God producing that fruit in you. I see God giving you a new heart and a labor of love and a desire to serve and sacrifice for others. And I give God thanks for that.
Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that we are not left on our own devices, on our own merit. Lord, if that were true, none of us could be saved. And we thank you for the perfect righteousness of Jesus, that he humbled himself, that he came here, that he condescended to walk among us, to live that perfect righteous life for us, a life that we cannot live, and that he willingly went to the cross and died for our sins, and that you, by your glorious power, pleased with him, raised him from the dead, and that all that should confess and believe in him, to put their trust in Jesus, would be raised with him. Lord, it is my prayer that all of us this week would examine our hearts, that we would look to see if we are truly being thankful that you would produce that in us, Lord. That you just help us just to be overwhelmed with joy and satisfaction in you. Lord, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for the words that you have written to us through the apostle Paul. Thank you that your glory is manifest through the gospel. Give us strength, Lord, to love you more. Increase our faith. Teach us to pray. Teach us to persevere and to have that steadfastness and hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. Thank you, Lord, for all things that you've given to us. But we thank you most for Jesus. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.